After a week's absence, welcome back to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my Rocks Back Pages colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. We are going to be talking a little bit later about Primal Scream. We're going to be talking about this week's audio interview, which is with George Clinton from 1978. But mainly and most joyously, we are going to be talking about and to the great Danny Fields, who joins us today. Welcome, Danny. Mm, thank you for having me here. <laughs> Welcome, hello. Good we were, morning. We're so thrilled yeah. to, yeah, to have you great. here. I mean, you know, we feel like we've got to know you a bit anyway, and you are just delightful and such an important figure in the story of rock and roll. And you have been a writer, although that's not your principal claim to fame. We've got a few pieces of yours on RBP. We're so thrilled to have them. We'll talk maybe a little bit about some of those. But because you're much more famous for being really the sort of unseen force behind punk rock, really, we might say, that that you are the, the true godfather of punk rock. Oh, if we no. go back Not to the title, Velvets yeah. and the Stooges yeah, and the MC5, and then, of course, fast-forwarding to the Ramones, whom you managed. For how many years did you manage the Ramones? Five. Five years. The, the five great a, years. The, the five important years. Duration of a contract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Danny, I'm going to start by asking, so in addition to three pieces of yours, we've actually included an interview that Giovanni Dadamo did with you for Sounds in July 77, and it's a profile of you. He had, I think he done an interview with the Ramones and you had said well why don't you interview me so there's this great <laughs> this great interview with Danny Fields which tells us a great deal about you the thing that really leapt out at me is is he sort of asks you well what what do you do Danny what what is your business and you reply shaking people enough to realize that something is there when it might be something they're not ready to absorb or appreciate that's what my main talent is and if you look back through your CV, I think it's pretty fair to say that that's what you've done. I won't argue with that. No. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yes, indeed. You know, so that we now talk about the Stooges and the MC5, but, but you, who essentially got them signed to Electra Records, in this interview you say you were, you were disappointed that they didn't get the traction that they should have done at the time, but now we can say, look how important they were. Okay, if you can say that. Can you I not think, say that? I guess you can. Musically, I think the Stooges were more important. Both bands came to my attention the very same weekend in 1968. Mm -hmm. I signed them both to Electra via a phone call to the president, and the MC5 were great fun. They ruined their own prospects by falling into the political miasma of their brilliant and wonderful manager, yes. but no one wants to hear <laughs> politics when you want rock and roll. This should have been the Grand Funk Railroad of a Grand Funk. This On should a have been a, a simple, level. hard rock, dynamite, great show band, but um, 
They got yeah. mixed up with sex in the street. Fucking the in the streets. Fuck yeah. Sex dope and fucking yeah. in the streets. That's it. Rock and roll, you know. We actually ran the White Panther sort of manifesto, manifesto didn't we, a couple of yeah. weeks yeah. ago. Because yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. we, we found a source of the Warren Forest Sun, which was the underground paper in Ann Arbor that yeah. John Sinclair basically set up. And basically, it starts off as like a full magazine and shrinks to a sort of Roneoed two-sheeter. And it's just full of... John Sinclair's manifestos and reports about them being busted, which they're kind of endlessly being busted, you know, for playing free concerts and disturbing the neighbourhood or whatever it was, you know. It it was that word, fuck, that initiated the spiral ruination of their career because it was in the liner notes for their first album, mm-hmm. double album, and you could write a lot of liner notes when kick it out opened up. Mm-hmm. Kick Out the Jams recorded live on Halloween in 1968. And John Sinclair, in November of that year, in Boston, wrote the liner notes with the word fucking in the streets. And what's an example of a store that sells everything and there's an, there's like an example of yeah, this yeah. store in yeah. every, okay so for the Detroit area it's a store yeah. called Hudson's and Hudson's did not want to carry an album with the word fuck in print in the liner notes and so they refused to carry it and so the MC5 went to their local underground newspaper took out an ad Two words, fuck Hudson's. <laughs> and so. <laughs> uh, and they don't the, take out ads like that anymore. And the Electra logo. Oh my God. And, and the, the, the picture was Rob Tyner, the lead singer, mm, yeah. wonderful Robin. And that was it. And mm. performance and fuck Hudson's and the Electra logo. Well, Hudson's was not smiling. And nor was Electra. <laughs> well, at first, Hudson's threw out all their other, you know, Paul Butterfield and Judy Collins, and <laughs> all the not not inflammatory. Yeah. <laughs> they refused to carry any, any Electra, Electra product. Gosh. So Electra fired the band, said you don't use our logo and fuck a big retailer because this is the record business. So. That was kind of the fuck did it. The fuck you, and the thing, and then the fuck and the ad. And did you go to the Grandy Ballroom? Did you see them? Yes, the, the first time I saw them. Right. What was the Grandy Ballroom like? The old ballroom. Yeah, just the edge of the ballroom. Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's developed it's, a sort of almost mythological sort of thing. I've been, well, the Fillmore of Detroit, but more than that. And well, yeah, it's, you know, like any ballroom that used to be a ballroom. Right. It was then a rock and roll venue. Yeah, yeah it was... Good show. It depends on who's there. Yeah, yeah. Walls and floors are meaningless <laughs> when it's when it's vacant. So. One of the things I love that you say in this Dadamo interview in 77 is that uh, people got hung up on Iggy's theatrics and the blood and the guts, but really they should have been paying more attention to the music. And I really like that because I think the Stooges wrote incredible songs. I think you're absolutely right. And 
that tends to get overlooked. I mean, those songs are particularly on, well, the first two Electra albums, but then on Raw Power. I mean, they, they're some of the best songs written yeah, in yeah. that era. And that gets kind of slightly lost. I'm so glad you legend. said that because, and it becomes relevant to where we sit now in London and whatever year this is. Because I heard them playing before I saw Iggy performing. I was on my way to up a staircase to the venue in the Student Union and the University of Michigan. And I thought, what's that great band? Yeah. Mm. And then I thought, what is that that great music I am hearing? Mm -hmm. And I followed it down the hall, and there was this great band. Mm. And then there was this astonishing lead singer, but it was the music first. Yeah. And always has been. And not always has been to the detriment of Iggy. Then then came Iggy, and then, oh, my God. Mm. Someone told me that in Camden, here in London, they're doing a night of a Stooges tribute. So 50 years later, yes. 50 years later, hmm. a rock and roll club in London is devoting an evening to those songs that you just mm. mentioned. I hope you'll be there. I think I missed it. I think oh, it was okay. last week. But they okay, do. Yeah. The fact that it's done, sure. uh, that I, it's I, a thing. I, I first heard Funhouse when I was like 17, uh, fr- a friend of mine... Uh, his landlady's boyfriend had a copy of it. And we put it on. I just thought this is electrifyingly good. Never heard it before. I'd read about them in Zigzag, never actually heard the music. In those days, hearing music was hard unless you bought records. And if you didn't have any money, you couldn't buy records. So, you know. So I stole the record. I stole Funhouse. Got it home. The record wasn't in the sleeve. And so I was a bit too embarrassed to go back and say, oh, by the way, can I have the actual record? <laughs> you know I nicked this yeah. last week. Uh, and I've still got the sleeve. And it's a great gatefold sleeve yeah. with that picture of Mill on the carpet in, in, in the middle. Mm-hmm. I keep meaning to open that up and frame it. It's just such a great cover. But what a record, Funhouse. I find you mentioned... Because I actually... I stole the MC5's kick <laughs> Not kick No, back in the USA. I think yeah. it's not in keeping with the <laughs> yeah. ethos of Detroit yeah. rock and roll. It's Electra Records. Stealing it's the Danny records. Fields. It's stealing records. There's, there's a cosmic <laughs> pattern here. Way before Electra, of course... I mean, let's go back to the, the, the start here. Just briefly talk about... So the first piece that I actually picked was this piece about Mama Cass having a screen test at the factory, which yeah. you wrote up for Hullabaloo. Oh, it's right. fantastic. Yeah, and so that. let's sort of position you in the context of the times. You, you are part of this, of this incredibly hip scene in mid-60s, early to mid-60s New York, centred around Andy Warhol. I mean, that's, you'd been to Harvard, and you became part of that scene. You were at the factory, you knew all those people. They were friends and family. Yeah. You don't think at the time, this is, oh, what a hip scene I mm-hmm. am in. You know, that's yeah. you. You're there. Those are the people you know and love, and and live with, and sleep with, and hang with. Yeah. Before that, and you please don't forget John Lennon and the Jesus shit, because I still think my career began with that bang. Of course. And very second, third hand was I responsible for it, but I think it was so significant. And do we know what we're talking about mm-hmm. here? 
Absolutely. Well, well, there's a Maureen Cleave interview where he claims that... My Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Jesus yeah. It was my first job in the music industry. Yes. Datebook magazine, a sort of third-rate teeny bopper magazine that how to get along with your new stepmother or <laughs> that boy, well, what, what can you do to make him notice you, things like that. Serv- <laughs> it's called yeah. Service Magazine. Yeah. How to get chewing gum out of your hair with raspberry jam, or how to get raspberry jam out of <laughs> with your hair, whatever. <laughs> the publisher began noticed that the Beatles were buzzing <laughs> here in England and came over, became, made connections with them. Got Neil Aspinall, the road manager, to do a series for his magazine. And from Maureen Cleave, bought interviews she had done with Paul McCartney and John Lennon, which we then owned for reprint in America. And I saw John Lennon's interview and said, Well, I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. There's a cover line for a magazine for 11-year-old girls, I think. Um, Paul's was even more... Astonishing, as you know, but it was swamped by that. And inside the continuation of the interview, well, it was just blurbed on the front cover, and then John saying, We're more popular than Jesus now, which came. I had been fired since that magazine went on the newsstands, but when it did, it was the beginning <laughs> of their giant stadium tour of America in 1966 where they were met by the Ku Klux Klan yeah, in, yeah. In, in Memphis. Mm. They had to take John off the tour and send him to Chicago. It was the nearest city with enough microphones. What, Give what do you have to say about yeah. this? Yeah. You know, and poor John had to say, oh, well, I really meant we sell more records than Jesus. Who <laughs> <laughs> uh, never had a top five hit? You know. <laughs> And then it was, it became, it was the original line was, we are more popular than Jesus. And it became, we're bigger than Jesus. Mm. Somehow, somehow, to such a somehow that John himself, in recalling this event, said, oh, then I got in trouble for saying we were bigger than Jesus. Well, John, you didn't say that. Mm. You said you were more popular than Jesus. In any case, it was Maureen's interview that we had bought. Years later, in a Yoko auto memoir, she said, oh, John would say, I will always be so grateful to Jesus for getting me out of that fucking puppet show. (laughs) So, uh, okay, I mean, things reverberate and come back. It it is extraordinary, I mean, one of the magazines we have access to is KRLA Beat, which was the free sheet given up by radio station Los Angeles. And when that thing exploded, it really exploded. I mean, it was basically on the front cover for about a month. The letters pages were just full of people talking about it, you know. I think that took us in this country a bit by surprise. So even though notionally Britain was, in inverted commas, a Christian nation in the mid-60s, it was actually a pretty secular place. We had no conception of how important 
Christianity in certain sections of American society. Well, certain sections where no one has ever been, like Alabama, <laughs> you know, the deep south, the yeah, Bible yeah. Belt, it's called. And Did you get a, fired for doing that story? I mean, no, I got fired for being a lousy editor. It was my <laughs> first job, and I didn't know how to be a magazine editor, and he was right. I would have fired me, too. <laughs> um, I mean, I wish I could say that. It would be... It was the publisher who wanted that. The publisher right. had an intense left-wing agenda in his own mind, even right. though he was putting out a magazine for teenage girls. So he kind of liked the idea <laughs> of doing that. But the shit hit the fan. I mean, yeah. this was... <laughs> Absolutely. People were burning their Beatles. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was like the Beatles in the Middle Ages. Yeah, was, yeah Absolutely. Blasphemy. So that kind of set you on a certain course. Didn't well, it was it? fun making trouble. Yeah, <laughs> right. That was and most of the artists that you've worked with have made trouble, trouble of one kind yeah. or another, haven't they? Yeah. So Jim Morrison, who you worked with as a press guy in '67, right? I mean, I think you were maybe one of the first people to suggest that "Light My Fire" should be the single from the first album, the first single. Yeah, I was hired to help out with their press when they came to New York by friend of mine in Los Angeles who was Ronnie Harron. She'd been working for them at the Whiskey A Go Go. She said, Will you take care of my guys when they're there? So I said, Oh sure. And I went to see them play and then I went and introduced myself to Electra Records. Where they said, Oh gee, a press agent, we've never met a press agent <laughs> which I really wasn't, but I was pretending to be one. And they said, Well did you hear anything you like? Have you seen them play? I said, yeah, I saw them last night. Did you hear any songs you liked? I said, something about a fire. Mm. I don't remember it, but it's sticking in my head to this minute. And they said, oh, that, it's seven minutes long. It can never be a single. And besides, we've released another one. This is exactly at the time the Doors' first album came out. Mm. The first single was called Break On Through, That's which it did not. That's <laughs> uh, and then other people were saying, hey, this Light My Fire is a song, but there's sort of a academically pretentious, and I love Ray Manzer, but still organ solo in the middle that goes on forever. Yes. So they sent the producer, Paul Rothschild, back into the studio and said, trim it. I mean, you yes. can hear the splice. It just like sudden <laughs> the, the, the organ solo splice. ends. And yeah. it was, come on, baby. And it was more than number one. Well, it was the first number one single I think Electra ever had. And it was a career, what we call a career single. Sure. Internationally, it's a big hit. It changed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's yeah. like everybody today knows that song. Yeah, yeah. Is- I just had to, Danny, uh, write the sleeve notes for Rhino's latest version of the Soft Parade. Boy, did I draw the short straw on that one. <laughs> Last time around, they gave me Strange Days to which is my favourite Doors album by far. Listen... Oh. Having to try and sound positive about the soft parade was, <laughs> was like pulling teeth. It is, it is, it's 95% horse shit, really. Yeah. It really is awful. So, Jim Morrison, Iggy Pop, Nico, the MC5, the Ramones, Lou Reed, Jonathan Richmond. I mean, this is what's the minute, common thread here? It's Danny Fields, you know. Um, We're forgetting it, David Peel and have a marijuana. And David Peel have a marijuana. I mean, you weren't looking was, for trouble, really. Yeah. You? Yeah. You still are. I found it. Um, yeah. Uh, but one of our previous guests, Michelle Kirsch, 
hung out with David Peel when he was like basically washed up living in Washington Square Park pretty mm-hmm. much. And she was like sort of wannabe hippie, a bit too young to be a hippie. And she basically hung out with him for about, you know, several months. And she said, when I talked to him, he was an asshole. <laughs> oh, he was an asshole. Yeah, no question. Uh, rest in peace. I had said to Jack Holtzman, you know, he used to put out all these non-such beer songs from Heidelberg. You know, why don't you do a pot song. It is 1968 and everyone is smoking pot. Michelle was saying that they, he was still organising pro-pot demonstrations and this is about 1976-77. He's still trying to, still bashing that particular... Yeah. yeah. Flogging that horse. Yeah. Well, because I saw him in Washington yeah. Square. He was singing Have a Marijuana. I like marijuana. I was like, have a marijuana. No, no, let me t- I'll tell you where that came <laughs> okay. from. Um, he's, I like marijuana. Well, he had a bit of a speech defect. So Time magazine covered a demonstration where he walked in with yuppies, marched into Grand Central Station, and he's singing, yes, yes, yuppies. I'm sorry. And he's going, and the writer for Time magazine said, Yippie stormed into the Grand Central Station singing, Have a Marijuana. And I said, That's not the title of the song, but boy, that looks great. I love that. No one would say that. It's not English, it's not anything. That became the title of the album. There it is. I like marijuana, you like marijuana, we like marijuana too. A marijuana. We have so much to talk about. We have to jump forward. I mean, I just want to mention the three pieces again. So we talked a little bit about Andy Warhol. I found a piece from the Soho Weekly News, 1974, a long conversation that you had with Leonard Cohen, appropriately at the Chelsea Hotel, and it's just great, as most interviews with Leonard are. He says some really interesting things in there. And then the third piece is an interview with Robert Plant from 1988, the solo Robert Plant, where he talks about Led Zeppelin, of course, but is as eloquent and amusing as ever. So two of probably the best interviews you could really hope to get. Cohen and Robert Plant. I just read one, I mean, he talks a bit about Janis Joplin, and he says a really interesting thing. You know, why did she die at 27? He says it really happened to her when she was about 25, maybe earlier when she became able to command huge audiences, and that's quite young. I mean, anything can happen to any of us to crush the spirit and make us destroy ourselves. But just the scene itself, I always did have the impression there was a sense of over-dramatization and all the people involved, the artists, journalists, critics, all taking this thing a bit too seriously. Death? Taking death too seriously taking, as no, opposed no, no, to taking, what? Taking rock and roll too seriously. Oh, and, and, oh. and the net result of that was someone like Janis Joplin really kind of being turned into the sort of the queen of the counterculture, a role that I, I think she found hard to... Anyway, I don't know what your feeling was about rock and roll by that point, 1974. The Ramones have already formed by that point, interestingly. But you're sitting here talking to Leonard Cohen, and he's saying these interesting and wise things about what music has become. Do you remember that interview? I remember it. I have it on tape, and we used it, and we did a tribute to Leonard in New York just after he died. And I had someone read my friend Mara Hennessy read what Leonard said and mm. I was the interviewer and then 
we actually played the existing Leonard speaking. I just remember it being really good. I sort of have it in my computer at all times because it's just funny. He talks about a pair of boots that he saw that he really wanted. Yeah, it's great. About smoking it's cigarettes. a very interview type interview. Yeah, They're talking about about food and shoes. He, he, and he, he does do great interview. I mean, we got a Richard Goldstein interview with him, which is just fantastic. I mean, Richard Goldstein, we'll talk about a bit later, but I think he's a marvelous writer. And Leonard Cohen, I mean, whose music I've liked and disliked. I mean, I'm you know, very up and down about it, but I always like reading interviews with him. Yeah. He's always interesting. He's such a bright, was such a bright guy. Yeah, exactly. When you said it was an interview kind of interview, were you, did you mean interview? Like interview magazine type did, of you interview. You know, the irony of that is that I was asked by interview magazine to do an interview with Leonard Cohen, whom they knew I knew. And they didn't like it because he wasn't. They decided, someone there decided he wasn't cool enough. Had an interview with a belt designer in its place, <laughs> and I had been writing for the Soho Weekly News at the time. Mm-hmm. And the publisher there said, "Oh, I'll, I'll take, take it. it." Well, isn't that interesting? Because yeah. Leonard actually says in the interview, "I don't know the kind of people that get written about in interview." Right, magazine. because we thought we were doing yeah. it for. And this, interview. of course, is Warhol's magazine. You yeah. Know, in case yeah, yeah. Uh, any listeners aren't, it, it, it was a very social yeah. kind of in-crowd sheet. So this is late 74 you're talking to Cohen in the Chelsea Hotel scene of that famous song. The Ramones had already formed at this point. Yeah. But I don't imagine you would have known of them in December 74? Oh, no, no. I didn't know about them till 75, till 75. about a year later. Yeah, yeah. Because I had a weekly column in the Soho News because I was saying... Hey, you should go see the band television. Right. You should go see Patti Smith. And they started a harassment campaign calling me all the time. All these Day bands. and night. And the Ramones had, Yes, the Ramones. Yes, no, it was the Ramones. Indeed, Tommy Ramones saying, we know you're going to like us. I had no idea who they <laughs> were. And I thought they were a cha-cha band or something. <laughs> and I said, yeah, 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 I will, I will. Of course, when I did, I fell in love, yeah. you know, from the first, I don't want to go, but down to the basement, I thought, well, this is great, this yeah. is loud, this is fast, this is short, they're great looking, this is great. That was in 75. You said yeah. in the Dadamo, I think not since the Stooges had I heard anything that was hard enough. That was the band. The Ramones were the band I had been waiting for. Everything else had gotten real soft and mushy. Yeah, solos. Guitar solo, and they were available solo. for management. They were available for anything. Well, <laughs> not really. No, I said after the show. I said, "Well, let's meet on the sidewalk after the show." I don't like to talk to anyone before they go on stage. I think that's rude and mm-hmm. awful. And so I met them. And I said, well, "They said, will you write about us?'" And I said, "Well, I don't know what came over me." I said, "Not only will I write about you, but I would like to manage you." This just the devil entered my, body my vocal box and said that. And Johnny immediately said, oh, okay, well, we need $3,000 for, drum, for drums. Okay, I think this is 40 years ago, so I don't know, but that was a lot more money, and that's mm-hmm. a lot of money for drums anyhow. But yeah. I didn't know, I don't know. Do you need $3,000? Okay. 
So I flew to Florida and borrowed the money from my mother. I thought, hey, Mom. <laughs> so she's the real good yes. mother of oh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. She should get the thanks. For Anyhow, I came back with a check for $3,000, and I became the manager. And that lasted five years until I was fired because they were not on the radio. They were not selling records. And contract is five years. Contract expires, at which point, if everyone is happy, you renew. They took a vote, and Dee Dee and Joey voted, let's get a new manager. Johnny, who was the heart and mind and spirit of the Ramones, wanted to stay, but he was outvoted. There were three voting members at the time. And they wanted to sell records. Well, they never sold records. And I'd the, say you may have been lucky to have been fired when you were because I think they became so rapidly uninteresting after that. Well, that may be. They also became rapidly troublemaking in that Johnny, the guitarist, stole the girlfriend of Joey, the singer, and married her. And from that moment, they never spoke again, though their career went on for almost another 20 years. Yeah, it's, 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 so it's pretty bleak. It was scenario. a good time. Yeah. To be fired. Of course, I'm going to mention here that they wrote that wonderful song about you, Danny Says, and that then became a wonderful documentary about your life. If no one's seen it, we can't do justice to Danny Fields' career here, but this film does, and everyone's there talking about how much you did for them and how much they loved you. Is it on, like... A streaming service yet? Is it is it available to see? Oh, it was on Netflix. It is on Netflix. Oh, it, it was. Danny I, I says, been, watch yeah. it. It's amazing. Oh, it's wow. Brendan Toller's movie. He made the movie. Yeah. It's I had nothing to do with it except it's about me, and I know it, that sounds vain, <laughs> at least. <laughs> but I really wanted nothing to do with the making of it. You do it. I'm not. I don't even want to know what people said about no, me. No, sure. No, I remember. You, I remember you saying yeah. that to me when it came out. There's also that wonderful book of your Ramones photographs. Which, that I'm proud which of. Which is just terrific. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the sort of iconography of the Ramones was something, apart from anything else, you were very responsible for. Yeah, that's the only thing I ever really did. You know, I took the pictures and I wrote all the words. Yeah. Except for a few guests contributors you know but yeah that's nice i mean it, it i just, never did anything you know it's hard for you to say well you are blah, blah, blah. but without but I whom, did that. you know without whom i mean they were my favorite punk band i have to say i vastly preferred them to the british punk bands yeah saw them loved them fell in love with them even if they were part cartoon i still think those songs are fabulous the whole sound the concept everything about you them did, i just adored. did you go to the roundhouse show that first i didn't thing? go to the round i was no. away uh, I, but I, I, I couldn't get the in rainbow in 77 i've stood outside right. and failed to gain access you saw the new year's eve 77 78 yeah that's the next rhino big deal box yeah I mean, they were a phenomenal live band, and, yeah. and I saw their last UK show, I mean, all those years later, I think 96, at the Brixton Academy, when I now know, you know, that Johnny and Joey were not it's, talking. I mean, it's Oh, they really, hadn't talked for, so since sad. 1980. Steve Lipson was the first guy to play me with their first album, mm. and it absolutely baffled me. I kept thinking, hang on, that song's finished. Mm. It's only just started. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes I know. <laughs> It's, it's actually, it's a perfect moment to segue into just a brief 
discussion of Primal Scream because the first piece about Primal Scream, Bobby Gillespie says, the Ramones must be the greatest pop band ever. I'd love to leave behind a classic body of work like those first three albums. So this is Bobby speaking in 1985, long before Screamadelica. Have you ever met Bobby Gillespie? A love party. Exactly. Oh, you, yeah, you of know course. Bobby, I'm yeah, sure yeah. You Oh, yeah. And brilliantly, actually. I, I really didn't plan this, but in the second piece I picked from 1991, so that's the year Scream Adelica comes out, Max Bell of Vox yeah, goes yeah. to visit Bobby in Brighton, and he walks in, and on the wall are pictures of the MC5, the Stooges, <laughs> Tim Buckley, and the broken vase shot from Love's Forever Changes. I mean, it's like almost it's a sort of shrine to a lecture record. Yeah, yeah, I'm all um, the so great. So, I mean, he's the ultimate, like, fanboy, isn't he? I love Screamadelica. I was unconvinced by them before that, but I still think Screamadelica is just a terrific record. They completely morphed into something that no one had expected with the help of Andrew Weatherall. I have to say, I, I can't get past his voice. voice. I like the screaming of the the sound of the it. The sound is amazing. I just find Bobby's voice so weedy, it just kind of drives me to distraction. I always loved the idea <laughs> when they did the following album and they went out to Muscle Shoals to cut it. And I, I just imagine what's going through the heads of these musicians who played behind Wilson The Pickett, greatest singers ever. And Aretha Franklin, yeah. and they're now playing behind and Bobby Gillespie. weedy, skinny, Glaswegian, <laughs> drug, druggy fanboy. I know. I think that is the thing that lets Primal Scream down. When were you first aware of Primal Scream, and, and when did you? Can you remember when you first met Bobby? I met Bobby, but you, you know, I don't know yeah. his work, alas. Okay. But I know he, who he was, yeah. and I met him, and we had mutual friends, and we just he's a great liked person to have a conversation yeah. with. Yeah. Well, he must have yeah. loved meeting you because he'd have known oh, he all about idolized you. Yeah. Well, yeah, but a bit. It's not to do with that. It's just sure. you know. Person to person, yeah, yeah. he's splendid, good, and yes, funny, good, yeah. and it doesn't matter if we never talk about any of these things that he liked that no. I may have been involved in. No, no. Sure. It's just so, the, the last piece, uh, I, I tried to just span the, the career of this band. James Brown, former editor of Loaded, talking to Bobby and the other guys. It's a retrospective piece, it was published in 2010, and by this point, Bobby is actually clean, and James says, I, times were, were, were very different once. Now I run into Bobby at a North London children's soft play centre, <laughs> where, where we bump into, into each other with our two with our kids, <laughs> I, which I just love because, in a, rather like Iggy and so many others, you know, really probably Gillespie should have been dead by that point. They did. There's a brilliant story where James Brown says when he worked at the NME in the 80s, a colleague came back from New York and described a heated debate within the group he'd witnessed in the street in New York. Let's get Vietnamese. No Chinese. What about <laughs> Indian? So when the writer suggested getting a burger instead, the band said, we're talking about heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether there is such a thing as Vietnamese heroin, I, I say, but it's I mean, a great story. He's someone I'd see at gigs back in the 80s. Uh, you'd go to a gig, and there would be Bobby out of his mind. Mm. He'd just be literally reeling around, but always with a couple of people, friends around, who can, like, hold him Propping up. Propping him up, hold yeah. Him, yeah. Him. There was nothing to him, really. <laughs> no. I mean, he's a pipe cleaner, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he has got great taste, you know. I mean, I've only met him once, and I uh, just, you know, to talk with him about kind of Graham Parsons and Alex Chilton is a real joy. Mm -hmm. you know, he really has no about 
that stuff. Yeah. So anyway, that's the free feature. Three pieces on Primal Scream who release a new compilation this week called Inevitably Maximum Rock and Roll. I'm a fan with some reservations and we're now going to talk about this week's audio interview, Mark. Yeah, it's uh, George Clinton, P-Funk, November 78. The interview takes place in a deli on 7th Avenue in New York. Later on, they'll go down to a Passaic, New Jersey, to the Capitol Theatre where they're playing a show. And it's a kind of rambling conversation rather than an interview as such. George Clinton's always very engaging. He talks about the early days of Parliament, up to the downstroke Chocolate City, how going into Casablanca Records the best thing that it did. Yeah. They sort of pay mutual tribute to Screaming Jay Hawkins and Louis Jordan. Cliff White is a, was a friend of Screaming Jay Hawkins and spent, a, and spent a day with him, and they talk a great deal about that. Punk versus funk. I couldn't quite make out what they were really co- what conclusion they were coming to there. But <laughs> talked about Sly and Family Stone and Jimi Hendrix as being real pioneers. All the things you want to hear what George they, Clinton on, pretty really. much. And this clip we're going to play is basically describes what funkadelic is. Funkadelic is, is, is the ultimate P-Funk. Yeah. So the ultimate P-Funk. Funkadelic is a combination of everything. Funkadelic is anything that's something to be thrown in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Funkadelic is an attitude. Whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's Funkadelic is just a way. But that's the way we like it because there's no constriction on that. You can get away with so much on that. Yeah. Right. And when you ain't got to think about structure and constriction and leave yourself to your instincts, and know that it's cool, and all the musicians know it that way, it's unlimited where it can transcend to. Yeah. I mean, the music scares us now. You know, like, wow, did you hear that? So, and at the same time, we know it ain't us, it's just some come through us. You know, it ain't got nothing to do with no deep nobody. It's just that we've learned how to relax and play. By being crazy all along, we don't have to go by no rules. So we can play under less restriction than most people play under. And people accept us for that. Matter of fact, they look for it. It's slightly sad, actually, because it's 78, so even though no one knew it at the time, they were just going onto the downslope, P-Funk. Boots is not with the band anymore. Uh, I believe that George had discovered his love of free-base cocaine by that point. It's a huge organisation, he'd pile up Brides of Funkenstein and all that. They, half of them weren't getting paid most of the time, that, that all the money was going either up Clinton's nose or through this pipe. And really, within about two or three years, as a band, they'd evaporated P-Funk. But it, no, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Danny, do, is, are they a band ever meant anything to you, Parliament Funkadelic? I thought they were spectacularly funny. Yeah. But they had nothing to do with my life then. And I'm happy for them. And I feel badly that he has to say what funk is because no artist should be put on uh, on the slide with a pin stuck through him saying, what is it that you do that makes you an artist? So I, but he 
great style. Yeah, and, I, I mean, interestingly, the, wonderful. At the beginning of the interview, Cliff White says, "Well, you know, the enemy don't really do black music," which actually isn't true. Uh, for, you know, compared to what happened to the music press, well, partly afterwards. because of Cliff White. Partly because of Cliff White. But he said that you are the one band that rock fans can sort of understand in, in, in a way, and I, I can I can well, get that. You know, Cliff was someone who'd written about soul since the mid sixties, yeah, yeah. and you know, followed followed the story of soul right through to to this point. And I, it, it's interesting to hear him really embrace how he he talks a lot in the interview about how left field, how outrageous. Funkadelic art, P-Funk art. Yeah. And that was interesting to me because this is a guy, as you said, who hung out with Screaming Jay Hawkins and was writing about Solomon Burke yeah. at the Marquee in the 60s. Yeah. And he kind of understood that P-Funk were like this kind of almost hippie rock version of, of funk. Yeah. And that, they, they were spectacular. They were spectacular, and this is show business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with the space and mothership and everything. Yeah. I mean, this is the year of One yeah. Nation Under a Groove, after all, one of the greatest funk records ever made. Which we'll hear a clip at the end of the podcast on Great. precisely that. Yeah, brilliant. I only ever met Clinton once, and I found him to be absolutely delightful, yeah. expecting a slightly kind of paranoid freebase freak. He was, he was just... Utterly charming. Uh, um, Chris Needs, who wrote the, the biography, just loved him. There have been a couple of... There's a very good documentary about Detroit and sort of all about yes. Stooges and so on and so forth. And there's a time when P-Funk relocated to Detroit. And they loved all that stuff. They yes. loved all of that John Sinclair's mad ideas and so on and so forth. And you could say that actually bands like the Stooges and MC5 had some impact on George Clinton. I his, think his, so. Yeah. I mean, in that clip, it, you know, he took... Because there's a famous line in, in One Nation, you know, dance your way out of your constrictions. And that idea that they just dispensed with all constrictions, they broke off, they broke through the constrictions, was what made them so great. You know, yeah. he was so... I mean, they were so radical. Yeah. Uh, like Maggot Brain in those albums. They're, they're as much rock albums oh, as Maggot Brain. Maggot Brain. And Eddie Hazel, the guitar playing. Yeah. I mean, they really were up there with, with, with Sly yeah. and anyone else yeah. in terms of breaking down the barriers between, yeah. between rock and funk. Um, yeah, it's good stuff. Great. Good stuff. Love George Clinton. The reason we're running this now is uh, he's about to begin his farewell tour this weekend. So so there's a there's a tour starting in America By this very tour, weekend. He, George Clinton. It's George Clinton saying goodbye to wow. live performance, wow. or so we're told. You know. So yeah. there's a tour through the summer. So you know, bye George. We we love yeah, you. I, mean, I saw P Funk All Stars at festival about uh, a few years back, and they were pretty pretty damn good. You know, and they were still wearing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> but were you? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next? So we're going to talk about some of the pieces that you, you've shepherded yeah, uh, into the library. Uh, I'll blast through this fairly rapidly. Starting in 66, Record Mirror, Norman Dropling meeting visiting American Kim Fowley, who, after a sort of brief spell of sort of near success in the very late 50s, early 60s in Los Angeles, Bee Bumbles and the Stingers, the Hollywood Argyles, he had basically run out of gas in Los Angeles and just decided because London was swinging, he'd come over here and see what he could carve out here, which, as this story tells you, is not much. <laughs> he basically becomes part of PJ Prober's entourage. From what he I can sort make of out. is his road manager, that's uh, right. And he's kind of filling in on Joplin this background. He says, you could write something like Nutrocker. It's all a question of knowing the legal side of it. Actually, I did the arrangement got these coloured session musicians together in a studio about the size of a lavatory. We cut Nutrocker. When it became a hit, I found a white group on a 
streets and you sent them round as bee bumble and the stingers. Mm. I mean, Fowler's great thing is the gift of the gab. I mean, I, in repellent individuals, I think we all kind of mm. know and increasingly know. Did you have any dealings with him? Well, no, I, I wouldn't want to have had dealings <laughs> with him. <laughs> But there he was, and six one, six. one commuted to Los Angeles in the 60s, so I would spend a week, of, a month there. He was the kind of person who was stepping all over himself. You know, there was talent, and then there was Kim Fowley. <laughs> um, and you are not going to compete with this emerging gold mine of of musicians and talent, and he was, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I underestimate him, and people care, and he was a pioneer. And I don't know. If I don't it know weren't for you, him, you fill I, in the blank. I, I'm but not sure you do underestimate not, him. Um, you know, I think he's a classic Los Angeles character, along with like people like Ronnie Bingenheimer and all that sort of stuff, people who sort of become famous for who they are without actually really achieving yeah. it. Roddy yeah. is just nicer, yes. better, more... More innocent. Just, yeah. But Kim, Kim was innocent. I mean, there were parallels in, in that you were managing the Ramones and he was managing the, the Runaways. And, mm-hmm. and they were sort of starting in, in, in the same time period, weren't they? And so you must have crossed paths with him. Oh, in, a lot. Gigs I mean, yeah. with or without the Runaways, yeah. I mean, I knew Kim pretty well and I have to say, despite everything we know about him, I was fond of him. He always amused me. He was certainly one of the most brilliant minds I've encountered in, in pop culture. It's just that he had this sort of trash aesthetic that meant that he didn't really care whether the music was any good, as long as it was a hit. That's all he really cared mm. about was hits, and he didn't have many of those. No, you know, what's next? Well, Jim Morrison, The Doors, Jim Morrison, Richard Goldstein for New York Magazine in '68, and it starts off as a fairly sort of conventional interview in which Jim Morrison comes out with slightly mystic, cryptic stuff that you know he was prone to doing, and then they go to the studio. And he, he's drunk. I mean, by, they get, by the time they get to see he's got a bottle of brandy in his hand. Mm-hmm. Paul Rothschild basically ignores him. You know, the rest of the band ignore him. They're trying to work out, I guess, if they're recording... Must be waiting for the sun. Must, must be, be waiting for the yeah. sun, I would think. And basically, everyone hates him. Yes, everyone in, hated him. He comes into the studio yeah. very drunk, gets yeah. drunk. Yes, he was... I mean, he was obnoxious, wasn't he? He was I mean, obnoxious. Whereas Iggy could be completely chaotic and crazy, but... But you kind of loved Iggy. Yeah, and Iggy was never obnoxious. Mm. Okay. Mar- Janice called Morrison that asshole. Mm. And you knew <laughs> whom she spoke, no matter what else had been the, the subject matter of the day, that asshole was mm-hmm. him. And there was a night at a club called Steve Paul's The Scene. Yeah, yeah on uh, West 46th Street in a seedy neighborhood in a seedy basement. British musicians came there. It was a gathering place. The owner, Steve Paul, was an extraordinary person. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy, uh, Tiny Tim, Mm -hmm. was a regular there. And late at night, Jimi Hendrix would come by and... And jam. jam, I hate that word, but he would perform. (laughs) looking for a synonym. (laughs) And Morrison was there. This is so amazing. Morrison was there. It was just it, at this point, it is entirely populated by p- 
people who have something, road managers, performers, not the general public. And Morrison slithered across the floor on his stomach like a snake and got raised himself up and threw his arms around Jimi Hendrix's waist and started shouting as Jimmy, poor Jimmy, who was so shy and wonderful, was trying to play. And J- Morrison said, I want to suck your car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, and he's holding on to him, and the guy's trying to play. Janice is sitting in the back of the club and says, That asshole. <laughs> and she marched up front with an empty bottle in her hand and tried to smash it over Morrison's. Head. Fantastic. And then bottled fell to the floor. It broke the three of them. It was like it was a cartoon ball of smoke and splinters. <laughs> From and, yeah. And we're rolling around on the floor. Jimmy Hendrix, Janice Joplin, and Jim Morrison. Oh my okay, god. The yeah. three defining members of the twenty seven. Yeah, the twenty seven. Right, rolling around on the wow. floor. Steve Paul's the scene. And had to be set, pulled apart yes. by their, you know, there, keepers. There is a bootleg recording of a very drunk Jim Morrison trying to sing along with Jimmy at the steeple scene. Yeah. I don't know if it's that night or not, okay. but there, wow. there, there is a bootleg out there. Every morning... You suffered. You (laughs) suffered, Jim Morrison. I know. I know. Yeah, and you know, and then he didn't even do us the courtesy of dying once and for all. Um, (laughs) He's not totally dead. I mean, I'm I'm not a witchcraft kind of believer, but Albert Goldman, who wrote a biography of Elvis, and then one of the memoirs. Okay, John Lennon. uh, He was a distinguished researching biographer, whatever you thought of the product. He was working on the Jim Morrison, and he called our friend Gloria Stavers, who had been Jim Morrison's lover for a while, was herself an extremely accomplished and successful woman, and said, I figured it out. I figured it out. What did you figure out? He said, I figured out the secret of Jim Morrison. I just, it just, after all this research, I put it all together. I figured, I know, I have the answer. I know what it is. And she said, well, what is it? He said, they're calling my flight to London now. I will call you as soon as I arrive. He died on the plane. They had to put a napkin over his face. for the, Like Albert Grossman, Bizarrely. Yeah. Albert Grossman, Albert Goldman, Goldman both died yeah. flying to London. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we never found out. We what never found out, was. so... Okay. You think he's still alive? No, well, I think he, he still <laughs> causes trouble. Yes. Yeah. I think something didn't, in, you know, some of the assholeism <laughs> lives on and recurs, mm. yeah. Right, moving on to 76. Tony Stewart was our guest on the podcast a few weeks back, a great fun guest. This is him reviewing Shirley Bassey at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, I forget, actually, sometimes I forget how good Tony Stewart was as a writer because he really regards himself more as an editor than a writer. But he's plumper, the tops of her legs fattening, hips swelling to become middle-aged spread, but still Shirley can, to borrow a phrase from one of her most memorable songs, Big Spender, pop her and your cork the minute she walks through the door. 
She doesn't suppress her sensuality or even subtly and tantalisingly allow it to creep slowly up on you, but instead thrusts it straight into your face with the finesse of a stripper poking her nipple into a businessman's ear. <laughs> There's an appealing hand tartness, the bum thrust blatantly at the front row, the left leg constantly and deliberately revealed, almost showing the danger zone, the way she solicits salacious thought and frequently comments with a May West cock of the head. Brassy bassy, she makes Elkie Brooks look like a vicar's daughter. <laughs> and I, I just think that's great. You know, it's a real celebration of actually what makes Shirley Bassey fabulous. Such you a know, star. I couldn't live without the fat shame yeah, part. Yeah, but it's a seventy-six. As you know, someone the, who's you know no longer twenty-six, <laughs> uh, we, we don't need all. We know what's going wrong. We're moving on, Richard Williams reviewing a couple of albums, one by the Three Degrees and another one, a film soundtrack, both written, produced, recorded by Giorgio Moroder. It's in 1978. And Richard Williams is, I, I think, a terrific writer, and I think this is very prescient. He says, Ten years from now, some Nick Lowe with perfect recall will mimic the sound of Giorgio Moroder, for it defines and will come to represent a particular era as clearly as do their in-their-prime works of Phil Spector and Holland Dozier Holland. All the more reason, then, for catching it as it passes, newly minted through the fresh night air. Well, 78, 88 house music's appeared, in the sense that, that actually Giorgio Moroder was enormously important yeah. to electronic dance music. So he was absolutely right. Purely. There's a live review of This Heat. And uh, do you know This Heat, Danny? I mean, they, they were a really obscure ultra-arty sort of post-punk slash art rock group. I saw a couple of times back in the day, hated, and now really rather liked them, but, you know, I was too young and stupid to get them at the time. Sounds sent Phil Sutcliffe, of all people, to review it. There's no-one less likely to get this heat than Phil Sutcliffe. And sure enough, he doesn't, but he kind of knows something's going on. He says... This heat grab you top and tail and stretch you. Now, Rack does the same, of course, but I began to suspect that at times this was art. <laughs> and it sort of goes on like that, and gloom groans and discord, then wind, as in storms and digestion, both. QE2 impressions on the trombone. I mean, you know, he's watching this band, you know, playing some free benefit gig in Brixton, just utter bafflement. Mm. 1983, Ben Fong Torres in the San Francisco Chronicle on MTV. And this is really, it's... MTV launched in 81, I believe, so this is just a couple of years into it. And there's the gathering storm about, is it a racist station? Is it just exclusively playing white music? Can or it, uh, the, that makes you racist? I thought you have to say something bad about another race well, to be racist. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I mean, his point is... exclusionary, exclusionist. Well, it was excluding. It was excluding black music. Yeah. I mean, really, at that yeah. point, only Michael Jackson was getting played on MTV. Um, yeah. Rick James says, you know, MTV catering to white audience, I've sold over 10 million records and I can't get on the channel. Mm. And then the vice president of programming, Les Garland, says, it has absolutely nothing to do with race. We're picking out songs, not artists. We're trying for a consistency in our sound. <laughs> in fact, the music on MTV ranges widely from Joe Jackson's salsa sounds to Judas Priest's heavy metal. And Garland's statements weaken when MTV airs at white acts like Phil Collins, Hornotes and ABC playing decidedly funky or R&B-based tunes. But this whole bullshit about songs. This is like calling the Eurovision a song contest, or like MT. They were looking for videos, and Eurovision is a TV show, and it is superb TV production broadcasting. It's wonderful. 
who remembers the song yeah. since Waterloo? Uh, I don't think there's uh, been I think a there's memorable a, <laughs> song. I think there's huh. a very good point about this, is that they were actually cutting off the nose to spite their face. They're focus-grouped it. They've done lots of research, and they saw their audience as a white, young audience. Yeah, and well, suburban. But what suburban was interesting is when they started playing black music, MTV's ratings went through the roof. Yeah. And that's when they started things like Yo! MTV Rocks, which is the hip-hop programmes and all that. But they were wrong. They were wrong in strictly commercial terms to make it an ex- ex- more or less exclusively white station. Then it was exclusively Duran Duran-esque. Well, that's this true. is what defined early MTV mm. was how good a three-minute movie yeah. can you sure. make. Yeah. I remember and Prince's what it was little red Corvette yeah. being It was being television. The, the, uh, every new, as Marshall McLuhan thing, is every new, the content of every new format mm. is the last format. So the first movies were novels, right? The first television shows had been radio shows. Mm-hmm. The first MTV mm-hmm. Were visuals. They were television. They were not. That's true. I mean, weren't there for the songs. Though, it, but using that very analogy, that the, the first MTV was FM radio, but with visuals, and FM radio by 1980-81 had ceased being what made FM radio great when it first emerged as a place where you could play what you liked and you'd get this extraordinary range of stuff. By the by, the early eighties. FM radio had become an absolutely sort of focus group, sort of narrow casting thing of one station's playing oh, classic I know. rock. Oh, you know, yes, in the modern country and yeah, traditional yeah. country yeah. and modern R&B. And yeah. all. I guess, yes, that's what happens yeah. when you get yeah. big and famous. Anyway, the last piece I want to talk about is Barbara Ellen in The Observer in 1997, remembering her days as, as I could say, it's a fragrant haquette on the New Musical Express. She says, at the MME, you've got to live like a rock star, even if it's the kind of rock star with no success, money or fans. There's not a lot of money in rock journalism. The office careers always stood out a mile. They were the ones without scurvy. (laughs) (laughs) She says, you were given a platform to pontificate about music, the space and encouragement to learn your craft. How do you spell seminal? (laughs) Hardly any interaction with your readership, a.k.a. the kids, who, going by the letters page, were a depressing shower, all green and competitiveness. It's a great sort of glimpse at her stretch at the NME. Obviously, I was at the NME in the the 80s, and um, does it accord with that? I mean, I didn't feel like I lived like a rock star, but I had some adventures, of course. And I think things got perhaps a little more... You know, Dionysiac and hedonistic for journalists in the in the nineties. I mean, I do, yep. I think that people like Barbara, writers like Barbara, were were flying all over the world yep. with bands who were doing you know Classic highly drugs. disreputable things. <laughs> you know, that I'm sure has kind of died down a bit now. You know, the, the, the days oh, well, of, 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 of living at large. Well, you know, I, I you know the, the days of living at large for music journalists have actually evaporated completely because there aren't really no. a music press anymore. That, no. In, Precisely. In, in the same Precisely. Way. So, um, so thank you very much, Mark, for those highlights. There's tons more stuff going into Rock's Back Pages for subscribers this week. I will just mention En Passant. There's uh, the first piece we've actually ever added on Tom Lehrer. Um, high oh, time. Tom Lehrer. Tom Lehrer, oh, you must be a fan. He made my life Did what he? it is today. Yeah. Oh, my God, the give, old Give us like a, a, a two-sentence capsule. Summary of, of who Tom Lehrer was and he, why he was so brilliant. I think he was he 
taught math at Harvard yes. and wrote wickedly satirical songs. The old dope peddler yes, the from old long, dope long peddler. ago. Uh, he was a collegiate favorite. Um, everyone, I mean, yeah. everyone who was remotely him had an evening with he, Tom Lee. Well, wasn't yeah. his, he wasted yeah, yeah, it was a 10 inch LP. Yes. I remember the LP. It wasn't even when he said that when Kissinger got the Nobel Peace Prize that satire was dead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, yeah, top that. But, um, but you had you had those records and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was a, no, he was brilliant, a hero. Yeah. So we'll try. And, we'd, we'd like more Tom Lehrer in Rock's Back Pages, even though you know, obviously he's. Oh, a, I hope he has to come back. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we've also got pieces about a long interview with Neil Young by Robert Sandel about the Prairie Wind album, country music, a piece on the Leuven Brothers, my my very favourite uh, bluegrass fraternal duo, a retrospective piece on T-Rex's wonderful album, Electric Warrior, a little piece on Lil' Kim, who has a new album out this week, I the outrageous the, Lil' Kim. I believe the Sugar Babes interview's pretty good, Caroline Sullivan's Sugar Babes interview. The Sugar Babes interview from 2003, they were pretty great in yep. 2003, weren't yep. they? So I've not read that yet, our dear friend Jasper found that and added that piece, and would normally be able to talk about it, but... Sadly not today. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think that wraps things yeah. up, essentially. It remains, obviously, for me to thank you, Danny, so much for, for coming in and talking to us about all these artists that we we just really love. We, yeah. we, we kind of love all of them. There's no one we don't like. We didn't even really get to talk about Nico, but we did talk about Nico with someone you know, the great Jennifer Otter mm-hmm. Bickerdyke, who's Join. writing the biography, yes. and who's interviewed you, I know, about... Nico, how much you had to do with like the Marble Index. That will be a fascinating book, I think. But thanks for talking to us about the Ramones, about Jim Morrison, yeah. about Iggy. You couldn't really talk to somebody better qualified to do justice <laughs> to these. Um, and just your period on Electra Records. And um, Richard, what are you, so you're in London at the moment, just. Just, because uh, I love London. Because you love London. Yeah. And it's sunny today. Well, yeah, London loves you, Danny. London, London loves you. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I know it's not entirely ironic, but you know I am exotic here because <laughs> I'm not from here. And in New York, I, you know, sink without a trace. <laughs> because I'm from there and I've lived there my whole life. But when, I, you you know, when I come here, I am invited to the coolest Podcast and radio town. shows and, and, and podcasts. And well, you're certainly exotic town. here in Hammersmith. Uh, no sleep to Hammersmith. Absolutely. And it's been just such an honour yes, to have you here. It's been a delight. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming in. And Well, we're going to go out with another clip from the George Clinton. He talks about the creation of the song One Nation Under a Groove. Brilliant, Mark. Thanks. <coughs> and we will be back next week. Jasper and I will be back. To, I won't. Um, I'll be sunning myself on a beach in Crete. Rub it in, why don't you? <laughs> Have a great holiday, Mark. We'll Thank see you. you in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. So um, back next week, me and Jasper, and so on and so forth. Rock on. Thanks again, Danny. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. One nation under a I didn't want to wait with One Nation to Flash to Farmer come out with another record. Ran on the group that they least expected, but they had the most probably sympathy around the world was Funkadelic. Mm. Mm. You know? And we dropped it on that one and it just did exactly what we thought it would do. Yeah.
And it was a perfect song, One Nation Under oh, Rose. Great I mean, you could not have said nothing else, not a statement That's better than right. that. That one is Can you remember under when, the, when that concept came into your head? Well, a couple of girls gave me the title. They said, boy, y'all, nation under a groove. Oh, God. I said, well, God damn. I mean, this was like two or three years ago. Yeah. You know, I said, well, shit. It's going to be right down just, stuff all the time. Oh, I write everything. I write everything. I mean, I tell anybody, they ain't all be thinking of all this. I keep my ears open for anything. Consequently, I hear things that sound like things. You know, but that one came from two chicks. That was George Clinton in conversation with Cliff White in 1978, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Danny Fields. His book about the Ramones, My Ramones, is available from all good bookshops. And Brendan Toller's film about him, Danny Says, is available on Netflix. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Muris and Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Do you find the funk? <laughs> <laughs>